good morning, everyone. This today marks the end of our biography series. Everybody go, aww. You know, I, we, we've received some compliments, and I want to tell you, going into this, I think Pastor Chuck and myself, we knew we were taking on something rather tough, to take stories from far back in history in many cases and to try to make them interesting and to try to tie them into what we're doing. Um, and, and I think as the, the task went on, we started to love it more and more. Part of it was just the research, because we love history, uh, and and you really, you can't love the Bible unless you love history because the Bible is the history of God interacting in the world, of God's interaction in the world. And the Bible seals it all by telling us, and God's interaction is good. He's taking all this experience and pain and suffering and everything else that we, we all have in life, and he turns it for good. And it's going to be good for eternity, and so that's the promise we trust in. And so before we get into George Washington's story, I want to get into one of the oldest stories in the Bible. Go back 4,000 years ago. And this is the story of Abraham and his wife, Sarah. This is found in Genesis 17. Sometimes to find the way forward, you got to go way back in history to find what God's been up to. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between you and me, and we will greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from descendants after you for the generations to come, so that I can be your God and the God of your descendants after you. He was named Abraham, which means the father of them or the father of many. That's what that ending does. So you have a 99-year-old guy and his 90-year-old bride and they were called to start a family for God. This is the father of the Jewish people, and, in a way, the father of Christianity, because we are a Jewish religion. We follow the Jewish Messiah. So Father Abraham is our father as well. And he owned slaves. He owned slaves. He was a sinner living in a sinful world, which we are too. We are sinners living in a sinful world. Now, we use Abraham's story to inspire biblical faith in each other. But his character has flaws. And my worry is that if cancel culture comes for anyone, it's definitely got to come for Abraham. Abraham and perhaps other biblical figures. And what happens when that happens, if we can't tell these stories anymore, if we can't learn from these fathers and mothers of our faith, our faith can begin to crumble. And if that happens, we miss out on the greatest thing that ever happened in history, that God sent his one and only son 
to take on sin for us, our sin and their sin, to take it on for us. And Abraham is a link to that. Because you can't take on slavery and you can't take on racism until you take on sin. You can't fix the problem before you, until you fix the problem behind the problem, the thing behind the thing. And the thing behind the thing is the reality that all of us are selful, selfish, sinful people, and we live in a selfish, sinful pattern of life. It enslaves us to hate instead of to love, to hoard instead of to give, to curse instead of to bless. So let me suggest before we cancel statues or other monuments, perhaps it's important to start with personal and communal confession for our own sin. And maybe our nation, if they can see Christians doing that first, that we want to be humble before God, before anyone else, Maybe we as a nation can become more humble. And we can build a better future from the foundation of both our biblical and our national fathers. Now, I think it's possible some statues do need to come down. But I'm not going to be the judge, and I'm not going to be the jury. And none of you need to either. Things need to be lawful and legal. But let us judge our own sinfulness first before we seek to consider historical figures. So this is the core question that I want to talk about today. How can we, how can we honor the history of our nation, celebrate it even? How can we honor the history of our nation without overlooking the faults of its ancestors? See, I think cancel culture has been evolving for really the last 50 years or so, about 50 years We've adopted the idea that no one is in a position to say what's right or what's wrong. And it's also almost impossible to point to anyone as a role model, especially historically. It's complicated, but I think I can point to a lot of its beginnings at the time of the Vietnam War, as well as the Watergate scandal. Because without a doubt, these helped accelerate a trend towards suspicion of the official version of things. To relook at history and to question our leaders. Because it seems like from that point on, the stories of our presidential heroes have started to turn more negative. And, by the way, the internet over the last couple decades has given each individual access to learn and to judge history for themselves, even if they have no wisdom or background to do so. Here's the truth. Slavery has been around as long as there have been people. Most of the time, slaves were the spoils of war. Anyone you didn't kill became your property. And you didn't just lock them up as prisoners of war. No, you put them to work. You took advantage of their labor to be able to feed your family. This has existed in every place, by nearly every culture in history. Which is to say that none of our lineage is exempt. None of our lineage 
is faultless. Because it's the way of fallen man. When fallen man wars against each other. Now our founding fathers, they're no exception. And to forget that history, or even to forget that slavery exists today, across the world, is irresponsible and it's opposed to the gospel of love that Jesus has given his followers. And so we must speak out for freedom, both in our country and abroad. And that brings me to our biography today, George Washington. It seems like a really, really long time ago that he lived. But if you think about it, it's like three people ago. Three people ago. My grandfather fought in World War II. And he knew his grandfather who lived in the 1800s. And he knew his grandfather who lived in the 1700s. So it's, to me, it's kind of like three people ago. If people live about 80 years or so. Our country today celebrates 245 years. It's not that long ago. I had ancestors who were some of the first 200 Puritans to come to America. There were 132 Europeans who were living here when the third ship, the Anne, that brought uh, my forefathers here, sailed into Plymouth County in 1623. That's 150 years before the Declaration of Independence was even signed. 1623. So who is George Washington? Is he the father of our country? Or a wealthy landowner who owns slaves? He's both. So why would I talk about him today on July 4th? Because I believe he might have been the only person alive at the time who voluntarily gave up extraordinary power for the birth of a new ideal and a new country. I believe he might be the only person who was alive at the time who was willing to do that. He actually could have been king of America. And that's back when being a king meant something. It meant you had absolute power. Such a sacrifice by a world leader is unfathomable today. It doesn't exist. But George Washington knew that there was something even greater than power. He did this noble and heroic thing for his new country and for millions yet to be born, which includes me. So anyone who celebrates July 4th is a direct beneficiary of what this man did and what he gave up. They named a state after him, our capital city, a bridge in New York City, a monument. They made his birthday a national holiday, and they put his face on the $1 bill. Now, I know Ben Franklin got the 100 but this ain't too shabby. You take a look at... Um, you took a look at that face. What happens a lot of times is we don't think of him as like real flesh and bone, as a real person. Just some picture on a dollar or something like that. And the problem with this picture on the dollar is it's an old guy with a powdered wig and he's kind of got like a scowl on his face. He's not smiling. Almost like he's got like bad dentures that hurt his mouth. He did. He did. 
But this portrait, I think, in a way, is a false picture of who this man was. George Washington, in his time, was the manliest man people had ever met. He was tall, he was powerful, he was fearless, but he was also filled with grace. On the battlefield, he had several horses shot from under him. And when he was a dance partner, he was much sought after by the ladies. He was extremely ambitious. He worked hard to achieve fame and glory and land and riches. Yet when they wanted to name him King George I of America, he turned them down. And he changed the history of the world. If he had not been willing to do it, I don't think America as we know it today would exist, as well as many other democracies around the world. This is why contemporary memorials often say of him, he was the American Moses, because he led us into a new way of being. The man that you see kneeling in pictures with a Bible in front of him is often the report of many who knew him that he did that daily on his knees with the Bible in front of him, he prayed to God for help. Following the surrender of General Cornwallis of Britain, Washington ordered his men to treat the defeated with honor and respect. They could not taunt them, not even verbally. No insults were allowed. His heroic, fearless, and fair example inspired devotion among his men. Biographer David Adler writes, the men followed him barefoot through the snow at Trenton, and they wintered with him at Valley Forge without proper clothes, food, or firewood. Surely they fought not only for independence, but for Washington. But it's what he did after the war that makes him one of the greatest men in history. He confronted those who wanted to make him king some of them his very troops. And most of us can hardly fathom what this means for history. In rejecting power, George Washington became the first famous military leader in the history of the world to voluntarily step down, to give up power. King George of England could hardly believe what his adversary had done when the war was over. He said, if this is in fact true, George Washington would be the greatest man in the world. He would not win a war against a tyrant only to become one himself. This is all years before he became president. We forget that Washington wasn't simply the first U.S. president. He essentially invented what presidency was. Before him, there was no such thing. He set the precedent. How should he dress? Whom should he talk to? What should people call him? John Adams, who was the vice president, joked that he should be called his elective majesty because he was elected. Or maybe his mightiness. It was just funny to even come up with a name. Much of what we expect from a president was first modeled by George Washington, including imposing a two-year term limit on himself because he believed nobody should be in power that long. He wanted to quit after one term, 
But Thomas Jefferson was worried that the whole thing could implode, and so he begged George to stay on for one more. So you can probably tell I admire his character quite a bit, but what about the issue of slavery? Washington had wrestled with slavery for much of his adult life. And by the way, many of the founding fathers did. They really did wrestle with it morally. In July of 1799, 23 years after the founding of our nation, he rewrote his will. And in his will, he not only freed his slaves, but he ordered and paid for the young ones to learn to read, to write, and to learn a trade. And for any of the old or infirm who had been slaves to be taken care of the rest of their lives. So we can talk about his statues, but let's make sure we tell the whole story. Five months later, after rewriting his will, he became sick, and the medical care that was given to him most definitely killed him. He was bled four times. Five pints of blood in all, or 40% of the blood in his body was bled out. If there had been antibiotics, which wouldn't be discovered for another 100 years or so, they could have fixed him up in no time. It would have been no big deal. When the citizens of Alexandria learned of his passing, bells tolled unceasingly for four days and four nights. When the French found out, they lowered their flags to half-mast. And out of respect, 60 British ships did the same to honor the general who had outgeneraled them. There are many things in American history that cause me shame. But the figure of George Washington isn't one of them. He was broken and sinful, just like I am, and just like society at that time. But I'm thankful for the path that he put America on. If he hadn't done it, I, I fear nobody else would have. The freedom and democracy that, that we honor and celebrate today owes a big gratitude to the first man who refused to be king. And I think we honor him best in our nation when we continue to fight and protect freedom, the freedom that we all enjoy, and give example to the rest of the world that this is what freedom is supposed to look like because every person matters to God. And I fear many in our country don't yet get that, and many around the world surely don't. Let's talk about slavery in the Bible. There are two primary texts in the Bible that American slaveholders use to justify slavery. Uh, one was Genesis 9. Now, Noah had just survived the flood with his family, and he begins to start over. He plants a vineyard, but then he gets drunk and passes out naked, as you're prone to do when you do stupid things with alcohol. Now, two of his sons saw the embarrassment, and so they covered him with garments so that they could just hide what had happened to him. But one of his sons, Ham, made fun of him. When Noah woke from a stupor, he cursed the descendants of Ham, calling them to be servants of servants or, or slaves. So one of the justifications that slave owners used 
for owning slaves is a quote from a naked drunk guy with a bad hangover. <laughs> Doesn't pass the test. Doesn't pass the test. The other text comes from Ephesians, and it's repeated almost exactly in the book of Colossians. It says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters as if serving the Lord, because God will reward you for doing good, whether you are slave or free. Now, all other references in the New Testament and the Old Testament simply state that people owned slaves, never justifies the owning of slaves. Now, what Paul is asking Christian people to do, and Christian servants, and slaves who are Christian believers, what he's asking them to do is a big ask. That's a, that's a big ask. Bless the people who own you. Be filled with grace, even to your enemies. That is such a big ask. It never justifies the existence of slavery. But what Paul is saying, I want you to act like a Christian, even among your enemies. And by the way, it's the same ask that he commands of you and me. Act as a Christian before your enemies. As Christians, we're called to love our enemies, to bless those that curse us. And if you don't like that teaching, then you're rejecting the core of Christianity. It's who we're called to be. And so it's a big ask. But that's what the verse is talking about. It's about Christian character. It's not about slave owners having the ability to own slaves. Because the Bible teaches that all sin, including slavery and racism, is a result of the depravity of man. It's not God-ordained. It's not God-planned. It's selfish, despicable human depravity. Because the Bible insists that all people, regardless of race or gender or social status, were created with a mago day, which means in the image of God. So when you defame somebody or hurt somebody, when you mistreat somebody or abuse somebody or enslave, that is an attack on the image of God. And God holds you in judgment because they are God's daughters and they are God's sons. And so Jesus comes back and he's here to brighten that image, the Imago Dei that's in all of us, to cast light on that image so that it shines for the world. And he gave his life to redeem that image in each of us. Abraham was called to make his family a light to the nations, to show off the image of God in a world of injustice and war and slavery. And Jesus, as his chief heir, as his chief son, he won it back on the cross, and he declared his victory from the empty tomb. Now, there's a book near the end of the New Testament called Philemon, and it shows the difference that Christianity can make when we were willing to live our lives for Christ. And Paul is writing to Philemon, who is a rich Christian who hosts a church in his home. So in a way, he and his wife are like the leaders of that church or the, the pastors of that church. They are, they are leading the church in their home. They didn't have church buildings. They had homes of Christian leaders who were willing to host people with them. So he's a leader. 
And so Paul thanks him for serving Christianity and for serving the church to bringing people to faith. But then he has a big ask of Philemon. He says, I want you to free a slave. But hear it in his own words. After all his opening pleasantries, he says to Philemon, although in Christ I could be bold and I could order you to do what you ought to do. I could order that from you. By the way, I'm the Apostle Paul. What I say goes. I'm writing half of the New Testament. What I say goes. I could order you to do this, but I would prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love, which, which by the way, is, is how we preach the gospel. As Christian people, when we share, uh, when we want to share our faith with people, we share the love of God. That's what turns the heart. Not the rules, not the law. That can convict us, but if you want to turn the heart, you do it on the basis of love, the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, he, he, he restates it. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm talking to you about slavery. Guess what? I'm a prisoner right now. And it's because of that that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. What does Paul call Onesimus? He calls him my son. Who became my son while I was in chains. So this is somebody that's been looking after Paul, who cares about Paul, who's serving Paul. But he happens to be Philemon's runaway slave. Formerly, he was useless to you. He was just some servant. But now he has become useful both to you and to me. Why is he so useful to Philemon? We know why he's useful to Paul, but why is he useful to Philemon? Paul continues, I am sending him, now look how he butters this up a little bit, who is my very heart. Paul loves this slave. I'm sending him back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. I value you him, him so much. Yes, you're a Christian leader. I think he's a Christian leader too. But I didn't want to do any of this without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced what would be voluntary. It's very important to Paul that Philemon does this because of the goodness of his heart and not because he's forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. See, Paul's now bringing God into this. Maybe God had a reason that all this happened. Maybe God had a reason that your slave ran away, that your slave found me, that your slave became my friend, that he began to serve me in the gospel. Maybe God had this whole thing planned finally, man, and he knew I would send him back to you, and you were going to receive him, but you were going to receive him as anything less than a dear brother. He is very dear to me. See, Paul restates this over and over again. But he's even dear to you. Both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Why is he so dear to Philemon? Because this is going to be the test of his faith. 
This is going to be the thing when the rest of the world's looking in and finally gives testimony to the love and grace of Jesus Christ that he will be judged by. The world's looking, and they're looking at Christians like Philemon, and they're saying, so you want to follow Christ with your life? Show me. Show me. You believe that God has brought love into the world and that the way we are to love the world is to love them as our neighbor even better than that, as Christ has loved you, so you would love one another. Show me, Philemon. Show me. Verse 17. So, if you consider me a partner, he better, remember, this is the Apostle Paul, welcome him as you would welcome me. If the Apostle Paul came back right now, how would you welcome him into your home? If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. So even if you're bringing up an economic argument that you paid for this guy or something like this, the same things that the people in the South said during slavery, oh, you can't do this, it'll ruin us economically. Paul's like, you pig. Just charge it to me. I'll get my wallet out. I'll pay for them. I'll pay for any damages. Don't, don't use economics as an argument. We have an abundant God. He lines heaven with gold streets. Economic arguments are dumb. Paul's like, just charge it to me. I, Paul, he's pretty old at this point. I'm writing this with my own hand. Paul didn't write letters anymore. He used Timothy or one of the others typically to do the ink as he spoke to them. Paul took out his own pen and his writing with his own hand. I don't know what they used for magnifying glasses at the time, but Paul used it. I will pay it back, not to mention, you owe me your very self. You owe me your eternity. I brought the gospel to you. I was your first pastor. I was the missionary who went to your family who introduced you to Christ. You owe me your very life, your eternity. I do wish, brother, that I could have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. I'm going to tell you something. I identify with Paul so much with a statement like that. When you've been serving God with your life, when you've been bringing the gospel to people like, like Paul did, or like, Chuck or myself, like we try to, it is so refreshing when Christians get it. It refreshes our heart. It gives us passion for what we do. So we're going to dedicate the rest of our lives to this. And we just want to know that it makes a difference, that somebody actually wants to go out and love the world, that somebody can come to faith that a Christian home would open their home to others and open their friendships to others. It would make such a difference if Christian high schools were a place of love and acceptance. Refresh our hearts. As a pastor, I so identify with Paul because we so much want the church to get this because we know if we did, if we became the most generous people on the earth, which we can be because we live in the most generous place on the earth, we're so blessed. If we would just become those kinds of people, the world would change. And then Paul says, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do, I love this line, even more than I ask. 
Paul's asking a lot. But you know what? God can do even more. And then this is the last section I want to share with you. This is the very end of the letter. I think Paul is really laying on the weight here. He says, and one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me. Because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. You've been praying for me to get out of a prison? Prepare a guest room. What's Paul doing? He's saying, I'm going to come check up on you. I'm going to see if Onesimus is now your brother. No, no, your dear brother. The one who should be close to your heart, even closer to your heart than he is to mine. I'm going to come check up on you. And then he name drops a little bit. Other Christian leaders, I think this is so genius. He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, he sends you greetings. He knows what I'm writing to you. And so do Mark. Who's Mark? Oh, yeah, he wrote a gospel. And Aristarchus and Demas and Luke. Who's Luke? Oh, yeah, he wrote another gospel. So we got half the gospel writers who wrote the story of Jesus' life from eyewitnesses. He's name-dropping them. My fellow workers. And then he finishes with a blessing because Paul wants to bless him because he knows God can change him. What do you do with slave owners? What do you do with racist people? You bring the blessing of Jesus and you hope the Spirit of God changes them. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Again, what do you do with the sinful, broken state that people are trapped in? Paul's answer, the grace of Jesus Christ. I want to invite the band up. In some Bibles, they have a special way of highlighting the words of Jesus Christ. Because we know the words of Jesus are power over evil. They can defeat evil. What they do in these Bibles is they write them in red letters. They're called red letter Bibles because the words of Jesus have power over sin. They have power over death, and they have power to change our hearts. They can make your, your enemy your brother. They can set a prisoner free because when Jesus speaks, the world changes. Would you stand and would you sing this with us as we close our service this morning? God bless you. Yeah.
Holy 